We were chatting before service, and uh, um, so delightful to see Kevin up on the screen that way. What you don't know is that they only wanted to go with his face because of the later hosen he was wearing uh, down low. So, <laughs> But I have texted photos of that, so I'll show those later. Um, I know it's been said already, but uh, to the youth leading worship, as I said there, sort of teary, um, as you did the thing that you did, and, and uh, you know, we throw around in Christianity a lot kind of the phrases that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And uh, that's always meaningful when we say it, but for me it's never more meaningful than we actually see the expression of it. Um, life goes quickly, and we pursue a lot of different things in our lives, and uh, and I think it the things that I pursue that aren't eternal so often. And so to see God moving among you a generation or two beneath me in this uh, reminds me in a real tangible way that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So uh, continue to fix your eyes on Jesus. Uh, he is real, uh, and his kingdom will remain. Well, after all of us are gone, uh, his kingdom will persist. So well done this morning, and thank you uh, for that. So the scripture for today is from Psalm 34, 8, and it reads, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those that find refuge in him. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those that find refuge in him. So it's part of a new series that we're starting. It's good to be here. As you would guess, I love partnering with Kevin. He's been a long-term friend, a long-time friend. I think you know that. This is the church in which I've grown up, and so it's always delightful to be here. And just know that as a professor of Bible theology and Christian ministry at places like Bethel and Northwestern, I do get the opportunity to engage with and hear from a lot of different churches in the metro area. And I can say without condition that there does seem to be something really sweet sweet and lovely and kingdom going on here at Wyzetta. And uh, and I can say that without any kind of pretense. It's always really fun to be in this room with you in this way and to be with Kevin. I love the drive-through prayer deal. I haven't seen anything like that. And so I would recommend participating in that and, and uh, helping our community in that way. So while Kevin is overseas, he did ask me to kick off what is a new series that will continue for several weeks around the idea of our senses and how our physical senses are often mirrored in the spiritual realm of tasting and touching and seeing and hearing and feeling the reality of God. It shows up in the biblical text often, our senses do. And so for five weeks, we're going to go through these senses and what they mean and how they show up. You may have read Kevin's Encounter article on that, introducing us to this series. I think it'll be exciting to walk through. And as we do that, I'm mindful that... There's part of me that when I think about experiencing or sensing God, it ends up sounding sort of like the junior varsity version of the kingdom. It feels sort of lesser than the real meat of Christianity, that the real meat comes when we study God's word or we engage in theological discussion because experiencing God or walking out life with God in a, in a sensory kind of way is, I don't know, maybe untrustworthy. And unreliable. And so sometimes we sort of anchor our Christian faith in the practices that we do, that being reading the Bible, again, important, or studying doctrine and theology, we'll talk about those things. But there's this incredible invitation in the biblical text that maybe God is real. 
and that if God is real, there is the possibility, all again throughout the biblical text, of engaging life with him. And so it's going to be an interesting and I think potentially exciting series to get into. We'll start this morning with this passage again from Psalm, O taste and see that the Lord is good. We'll do a little more setup for the overall series and then we'll dive into that passage a bit more this morning. But would you pray uh, with me as we begin and get started? God, for the sense of your presence that we've had already this morning, for the beauty and wonder we've seen in you, in our youth, we are grateful. So as we consider what it means to live a holistic life with you, mind, body, soul, spirit, tasting, touching, hearing your voice in our lives, I ask that you would do what really only you can do, and that is to move among us in ways that matter. We thank you for your son, and we pray these things in his name, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. So when I say what I said just about Bible or theology or doctrine and all of these things, these things really matter. Uh, I am a Bible theology professor, so I'm a total nerd for those kind of conversations. If I could rewind myself sometime in history and live somewhere different, it undoubtedly would be somewhere just outside of Oxford, where I would hang out in the Eagle and the Child pub with C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and talk theology all evening long, and then create really cool worlds based on that theology, like Narnia and Middle Earth. For those of you that are Avengers fans, uh, the worlds of Narnia Narnia and Middle-earth far dwarf the world of the Avengers and the universe that's there, as important as that is. <laughs> Saw the Infinity War. It was, I don't know why I'm looking at you, as if nobody else has seen it, but I bet you have, and it's really, really good. I won't tell you that everybody dies in the end, because that would be a spoiler. <laughs> but what I would suggest is that If we rely too heavily on this idea of doctrine and theology, and thus what is sort of prompting this series about the sensory experience of God, we may actually run the risk of ignoring the entire witness of Scripture. For the Bible is not a series of moral commands or imperatives as if Jesus was standing by the side of the road and you could kind of walk by him and every once in a while put a quarter into him and he would sort of dispense some command and then you would walk away. Or is not uh, compiled as sort of a theological treatise, as it were. The Bible, as we read it, is primarily anchored in story. And it's a story about God's relationship with his people. It's a story that often refers to living out life with God. In fact, somehow in a mysterious, though very real way, we're able to experience God with our spiritual senses of sight and hearing and taste and touch and smell. So it's interesting to think about. This isn't always the circles in which I run. Again, when I'm in a Bible theology department, all of the conversation is directed towards which of the many theologies is correct. And everybody is busy arguing theology, who is right, who is wrong. And if we're not careful, we may end up reducing the Christian faith to a series of theological statements that we either say yes to or not. But the Bible talks about this relationship with God, to walk out life in the kingdom. 
And in fact, it's sort of unusual time in church history, if we could kind of study all 2,000 years that we've been walking through, it's an unusual time that we are spending so much time in some circles talking about theology and doctrine. Though again, as you would guess, those things are wildly important for me, but in church history, that hasn't always been the case. I think about the communion table, for example, and how differently that has been practiced over the generations. I know, for me, I grew up in a variety of possibilities within the communion table, and I didn't always know which was which and why. One of the traditions in which I uh, was part of growing up was that we took communion maybe once a month, and we would take it mostly because we believed we needed to be obedient to Jesus' words to do this in remembrance of me. And so uh, first Sunday of the month, we would grab the grape juice tray, right, and the crackers, and we'd pass them around and do communion. And it was mostly an exercise in remembering with gratefulness what Jesus has done for us, which is really important. I know for me, I was mostly concerned with not dropping the grape juice tray as it went by, right? Uh, and then maybe getting the one in the middle that was slightly elevated, because uh, that was sort of the holy one out of the grape juice tray. <laughs> but again, to remember and to reflect back and to recall with gratefulness is incredibly important. But if we look back at the history of the church, there was even a more expansive invitation than that. Because in many other traditions uh, prior to the ones of today's day and age, the practice of communion involves some sort of reality of a, of a very mysterious, though real, presence of Jesus in our midst. And in fact, if you could sit in that upper room some 2,000 years ago where Jesus was saying, do this in remembrance of me, it wasn't the kind of remembrance that we have so often in today's thinking of remember, which is, again, just to recall— But when Jesus says to remember among the ancient Jews, it was the idea that every time you do this, you're asking for the power of the past that is still present to be present and real in your midst. In fact, you're actually asking me, when I say do this in remembrance of me, you're actually asking me to come once again into your midst in a very real, though mysterious way and break the power of sin among you as people and as a body, and to call you into life and freedom. The early church had such a profound understanding of Jesus' real presence in the midst of the bread and the wine that the Roman Empire often reviled them as cannibals. They suggested that they really did need to be killed in the Roman Colosseums because they really believed they were eating flesh and blood. It was a bit of a misunderstanding there, but it speaks to the power that was there, that God was somehow really present in their midst. Jesus was there doing his work again. Again, it's not super consistent with some of the circles in which I run, where I run with gatekeepers of theological truth. And so the conversations revolve around who is in or out based on whether you are a Calvinist or an Armenian. And man, that causes a lot of conversation. I always say the Calvinists were predestined to be in the room anyway, so what does it matter? (laughs) That's just never not funny. We argue about whether the gifts of the Spirit are still active in or out based on that. We argue whether we should baptize infants or believers in or out. And these kinds of conversations, again, in the circles in which I run, end up constituting what is proper Christianity. Because there's versions that aren't, and there's versions that are. And then I read this invitation, O taste and see, that the Lord is good. And what does that have to do with this? 
Because I wonder what Jesus would think constitutes proper Christianity. Because to be a Christian literally just simply means to be a follower of Jesus. And if we could rewind ourselves in a time machine some 2,000 years ago again and not just live life of communion with him, but follow him around, answer that call of follow me, what we would hear in Jesus's beautiful invitation is something like this, orient your lives towards relationship with me. Experience me. Hear me. Taste of me. Then as you do, you will increasingly become like me, Christ-like in how you think, in the character that you have, and who you're becoming, and the power and authority with which you see, the capacity to serve and minister, all of these things that we do so often that makes us think that we are Christians. We do all of these things, and Jesus is simply saying, any of those things are an outworking or an outpouring of relationship with me. And so he leaves us with an incredible invitation at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where he says, Lo, I am with you always, even into the end of the age. And he says that because he's about ready to head into the heavens, and the disciples who would have been spending three years day in and day out experiencing life in the kingdom with Jesus would have been confused. Where are you going? You are our teacher, our master, our rabbi. We're used to doing life with you. We are learning and becoming more like you. Where are you headed? And he says, no, don't worry. I am with you always, even into the end of the age, even in... April of 2018 in a small church just outside of Minneapolis, lo, I'm with you, always, even until the end of the age. See, it's pretty simple. To be in relationship with Jesus is to be in relationship with Jesus. Not in relationship with the practices of the Christian faith, as important as they are, not in relationship with the right kind of doctrine, as important as that conversation is, the way we think about God matters, don't hear me say anything other than that, but to be in a relationship with Jesus is to wonder about what it means that, lo, I'm with you always, even into the end of the age. It's interesting, one of the things that I've heard uh, in my 47 years on earth, although I probably (laughs) didn't care much in the first five, but one of the things that I've heard so often in the circles, again, in which I've run, is that we live in this sort of split of the head and the heart. You ever heard that before? I know it in my head, but it doesn't come sort of into my heart. Meaning, I think when we say that, we sort of know the things of the Christian faith, but it doesn't really crash into our space in our lives in a way that we think should matter. So the point of this series is to wonder about, could, could there be an integration of how we think and what we begin to experience in our lives as followers of Jesus? To not say there's either head or heart, but to bring it all together in one beautiful woven whole as we're following Jesus. Lo, I'm with you always, even into the end of the age. What does that look like? What does it mean? Well, that's the point of the series. So that's the introduction. We'll go through in these five weeks a bit of the hearing and seeing and smelling and touching. And then this morning, we'll finish our time talking a bit about this beautiful invitation, O taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's, it's a good one to start with, I think, because when we talk about experiencing God, a tasting is nothing else other than really experiencing something. I would suggest that we can't really know something terribly well, uh, especially food that we eat, for example, unless we taste of it. 
So I love Indian food. My family and I regularly go to the Bacara restaurant over here in this little strip mall, lovely people. My eight-year-old even said, let's go there for my birthday. I was like, I couldn't be prouder of him in this moment. And I don't love Indian. I mean, he could have chosen Chuck E. Cheese, right? Which then I would have been, you know, numbed by all of the machines and the lights and the sounds. So to have some curry for my eight-year-old's birthday was outstanding. And I love curry not because I know the ingredients of curry, I love curry not because somebody has described it to me. I love curry because I've tasted curry. And at the taste of it, I almost don't even care anymore what the ingredients actually are. I know the curry. Another example, this one's going to go, I'm sure, way too far, but I'm going to roll with it anyway. And that's the example of the Kit Kat Chunky. And when I traveled to Scotland for the first time, my family and I lived in Scotland, I came across, unbeknownst to me, that there was a different version of the Kit Kat that I had never before experienced. And it was no longer just these uh, four fingers but that you'd break off and eat one at a time, and each finger leaves you not quite satisfied enough, and then you eat all four, and then, and then the whole thing's confusing. And what they did is they took all four fingers and they crammed it together in one glorious chunky bar. Now, I could try to further describe this bar to you. I could read the ingredients to you. I could tell you that this bar is, is constituted by British chocolate as opposed to some weird American alkaline version of it. But I would hazard to guess that you wouldn't know what I was talking about until you tasted of the Kit Kat Chunky. I would guess that if you taste one, and I bear witness to this, I have faith that if you tasted of the Chunky, you would be converted. Once you taste of the Kit Kat Chunky, you will be a follower. You will grow in your love and appreciation and desire for the Kit Kat Chunky. You will want to spend time with the Kit Kat Chunky. You'll start your day with the Kit Kat Chunky. You will appreciate the Sabbath rest from having to eat salads all week long when you get a chance to just sit at peace with the Kit Kat Chunky. You will orient your lives towards the Kit Kat Chunky and not some Hershey's substitute. You can't serve two masters. (laughs) You won't even want to try. You will love the Chunky and hate the Hershey's. And you'll know your future is secure because the Chunky will always be there. It's probably, in fact, I'm 100% certain that's a bit too far. But what I would suggest for those of us wrestling with our love of God, with our desire to serve Maybe dealing with that head-heart split that can be so difficult. Maybe we're fighting multiple masters in our lives. I know that I do, and it's so often because I've tasted of the masters of this world. I've tasted of how good it can feel to get a little extra money in the checking account, or how good it can feel to get that promotion, or how good it can feel when that relationship works out in the way that I want, and it's all these false substitutes. Those are the Hershey's of life. They taste good for a moment. But they are illusory. They're not the eternal kingdom. But they're what I taste of. So I think about God in my head here, but I taste of this stuff, and it's no wonder I'm so confused and why I'm feeling to masters so often. I think about some of the people in the text that seem to have tasted of God. I think of the woman when she broke that alabaster jar at the feet of Jesus. You know what she tasted that day of the goodness of God? She tasted forgiveness. She really did. She looked up in the eyes of her Savior. And forgiveness wasn't just a theological concept that gets us into heaven when we die. It crashed into her time and space. And she broke the alabaster jar. And Jesus said, yeah, to those who have been forgiven little, you know what? They love little. 
But to those people that have experienced the beauty and fullness and wonder of being forgiven much, you know what they do? They, they love much. I love how author Tim Rowe describes this tasting of God, what it means in this invitation of Psalm 34. It'll be up on the screen here. He says that the word taste in the Hebrew means to perceive the flavor, to savor and partake in experience. To taste something means that you've had a living experience with it. It's an invitation to have an intimate relationship with God and to test him and see if he really is as good as he claims to be. God doesn't want us to just read about his goodness or hear about his goodness, but the Lord wants us to fully experience his overflowing goodness in all things. We never know the flavor of something until we taste it. God does not want you to wait to taste his goodness until you get to heaven or until you've been a Christian for 10 years. God wants you to taste his goodness now, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I think it's difficult to overemphasize that in the biblical text that we study, that the invitation is, as I've said, into relationship with God, because it changes things. I think about not just the woman needing forgiveness, but think about the restoration that Peter tasted on the beach after denying his Lord. Changed his whole life. I think about how Paul tasted of the risen Lord in a confrontative way. Changed his entire life. Abraham and Sarah tasted of God as they followed his voice into the unknown. Mary tasted of him and sat at his feet and wanted to learn to be just like him. Anna had tasted of God so much she could speak with his voice. Moses tasted of God in the sense of experienced God in the bush, and he was willing to go with the I am at his back into Egypt. Tasting of God, experiencing God, it is the call of the text. And again, I know parenthetically, when we talk this way, it can be a little dicey because I don't always know sometimes if I am experiencing God or tasting of God, or maybe I'm actually just experiencing or tasting of the pizza that I ate last night. Doctrine, theology, Bible study, these things that matter feel somehow safer. How do I know that it's God that I'm tasting? One, you'll know. Um... But two, there's been a lot of things obviously done in the name of experiencing God, right? That have been just a wee bit wonky. Think of James Jones and the Caribbean island. I think of Oral Roberts trying to get $100 million for his institution. Uh, I think of all these claims that I hear people saying they hear from God. And I think there's a skepticism about it that is helpful and that we'd be mindful of. But I also want to just be careful that because there's been a profound wonkiness in people claiming to experience God, that we don't change the call of the text. The call of the text is to live in relationship with God, to taste and to touch and to see and to smell and to hear and have the head and our heart integrated. And so maybe instead of throwing it all out, we learn how to discern carefully together as a community and as individuals, what it means to follow God's beautiful voice into the unknown or to taste of him and the goodness that he offers. I think often of my young people that come to my classes, I've had a chance to teach for the last decade or so, uh, 18 to 22-year-olds, and, and so many of them are coming out of the best and the brightest of our evangelical environments. And one of the most common things that I experience with our young people is they describe a lack of vibrancy in their faith. They describe an emptiness in their faith. So we start our classes often by talking about the idea that if you decide to say yes to following Jesus, you probably just hang out for a little, a little while until something happens for you. Just ask God to speak his love into your soul. 
Because if you want to know God, it starts with the kind of love that God has. Not a permissive love, not a confrontative love. It is some of that, but it's a love that desires the wholeness of all things. It's a, it's a love that is for you. Wait until you can taste of that love, because theological knowledge of the love doesn't tend to move the needle, does it? Like, I can, I can know that God loves me, but then I feel lonely and isolated at night, feel a bit of despair playing games or pretend so often in my faith. Sometimes my young people really want to shout out and try to claim the joy of the kingdom because they're so desirous of it, but they don't know how to get it. But they feel lonely and isolated and confused. But if you tasted the love of God, everything begins to shift into those dark and scary places of our soul. That's why Jesus' fervent prayer for his followers in the Gospel of John is that they would love one another. It's why Paul is driven to his knees in Ephesians, that we would taste the love of God that he says surpasses all kinds of knowledge. It's why in 1 John, John writes that you can't possibly know God unless you know love. It's interesting, when Jesus comes, I mean, he was with the Pharisees, he was with the gatekeepers, he was with those who had all of the theological knowledge and the truth, and he called them whitewashed tombs. They looked great on the inside, but uh, on the outside, but inside they were filled with the bones of dead men. He said, depart, you don't, you know nothing of me. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's the invitation of the text. Sometimes doesn't make sense, but still important. It brings us to a second part of the passage and then the last part as well. We won't talk about what it means to see, but did you notice there was another sense in this passage? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Sight will be another part again of the series, as I said, but just know for now that to see something in the biblical text is the ability to discern pathways of good versus pathways of evil. It's be able to see with wisdom the way forward in where you want to orient your life and towards what do you want to orient your life. So experience God and discern that he is good, which brings to the last part of the passage, and that is about the goodness of God. And for something to be good, uh, just to give you a little definition in that, it's different than how I would, again, perceive of good in my 21st century English language. When I think of something as good, it's, it's sort of this value judgment, something that I like, something that I want to be a part of. So I might say something like, the Vikings are good, mostly. <laughs> And then by contrast, bad is the opposite of good, right, in our English language. And so I'd say the Packers are bad. And, I mean, these are self-evident statements. I'm sorry to make it so basic on uh, that. But this is this idea, you know, I mean, it's just so, it's just the truth, you know, you can't deny it. But good in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament of the Bible had a very different meaning associated with it. It wasn't a value judgment. So when God starts our story in the text with creation... And begins to describe, or he sees that everything is good. He can discern that it is good. It's not a value statement. It is a statement of its function, meaning that it is doing what it's intended to do. That God has hardwired reality into creation, that it will continue to unfold according to his intended design. So when God was making creation and he said it was good, he wasn't trying to give himself a gold star. Like, wow, who knew I had that giraffe in me? Gold star time for God. It was the idea of, yeah, I can see. I've created things that they'll continue to unfold. 
So think about an apple seed. An apple seed is good, uh, or a good apple seed, at least according to the kingdom, is not the perfectly shaped apple seed, or a healthy apple seed, as it were. It's an apple seed that if it drops to the ground, what does it become? It becomes a tree. And not only does it become a tree, it becomes a tree with more apples, and not only are there more apples, but now there's more seeds, and now there's more trees, and oh, wow. Now there are apple orchards into infinity. It's good. For God created an infinite playground of the universe for his infinite reality and goodness to continue to unfold for infinity. Keep doing what you're meant to do. Created a garden of Eden, a place of love and delight and peace and joy, relationships that we are naked and unashamed with each other, not worried about what we thought or who we were. We felt safe and at peace. And by contrast, then evil can be described in the biblical text as anything that stands in the way of God's unfolding good. Evil is anything that stands in the way of God's unfolding good. So think about just a quick example, lying for a minute. Lying is not evil because it somehow breaks a moral command. It does that. But lying is evil because our relationships, we are meant to live in beauty and wonder and delight without concern or suspicion with one another. And so think about what lying does, what yeast is introduced that begins to grow when we live in deceit. Now we have suspicion. Now we don't trust. Now this is not the Garden of Eden. This is not the ways of delight. Evil is anything that stands in the way of his unfolding toe. Just the fact that there's such violence in this world. I shouldn't be scared walking down streets, but I am. That's part of the yeast that stands in the way of God's unfolding goodness. It's just meant to keep going. We tasted a little bit, I would suggest, of Eden, of the future of the kingdom, just simply in worship this morning with our kids. This is the beautiful unfolding. Church communities, yes, we are meant to be here to study and to learn and to grow, but we are also the carriers of the future that we live life in such a way together that it somehow models and represents the beauty of God's good and his Eden that more people can live in and grow in to be fruitful and to multiply in those ways. How we are as adults matters for the future. That's why gossip is so devastating so often to most churches that I've been in. It prevents it from unfolding. Oh, did you see what he said? Did you see what she thought? Did ah? And then pretty soon, you ever walk into a dead church before? I'm not. Then what's so beautiful is when I walked. It doesn't feel. That, I really mean it. It doesn't feel that way here. I walk into so many dead churches, and it's almost always because gossip has killed it. The possibility of unfolding good. You ever gossip about somebody over here and then turn back and say hi? <laughs> Feels great, right? It's not Eden. Evil is anything that stands in the way of the beautiful good. You see, God has pathways that are eternal. And God has pathways that are beautiful and filled with wholeness. And so come and experience and see that the pathways of God are just that. They are good and they are eternal. Don't give yourself to the substitutes that we taste all day long of money and power and relationships and these things that we put in the way. Come and taste and see that God is good. If we can figure that out in some way, shape, or form, there's a promise at the end then that happens. But there's a second part of this passage, O taste and see that God is good. It says, blessed are those that find refuge in him. means happy are those that find refuge in God. And it's an invitation I think that we need. I don't know about you, but I find myself more often than not weary these days. Part of it is I'm sure that I'm 47 now and not 27, so that's part of the deal. But I think part of it is I'm just weary. 
of the headlines in the world will come screaming through my phone all day long, vying for my attention, tired and weary. There does not feel like there's any refuge to be found anywhere. What goes on in our schools and the walkouts and just everything that is happening, where can there be refuge? Oh, come and experience God and discern that his pathways are good, filled with future and hope and delight. It's a needed invitation because the world's a tough place. I uh, buried two of my friends in the last six months. Unexpectedly, but there they were. Just got diagnosis of a friend uh, or a family member, extended family member with, uh, with an inoperable brain tumor. And things we know. They, every pathway in this life fails. It comes to an end. Except for one, where we can find refuge. And boy, when we find refuge in the goodness of God and that his kingdom knows no end, that we can grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope, that we can begin to experience a kind of peace that passes the understanding of our circumstances, that there is a love that begins to crash into our souls when our head and our heart begin to be integrated, not just with the important truths of the kingdom, they are incredibly important, what we think about God, but if it doesn't move down into the realities of what we've tasted, you know what? I've never tasted uh, certain candy bars. I don't even care about them. (laughs) I've tasted of the chunky And it matters. How much more so tasting of God begins to orient our lives. Finish with a quick story. So a couple months ago, a student in my class asked me if I could prove that God was real. He gets that question a lot, and this time answered in a different kind of way. He said, can you prove, uh, Kapsner, that God is real? And I said, you know what, I can't. And there was this stunned silence in the classroom. Oh my gosh, a professor guy can't prove that God is real. It can't be possible. The kingdom's not real. But I looked back at him and I said, you know what? You can't find anywhere in the Bible where the invitation is that we all go prove that God is real through some kind of argument or apologetic or whatever we try. There is evidence, obviously, but I've never met anybody for a second that's been argued into the kingdom, that has been convinced completely. It's not the invitation to the text. I looked back at him and said, you know, to believe in God in the biblical sense of it isn't to try to prove that he's real. To believe is simply to yield and surrender your whole life, even though it may not make sense. To just give it a shot. To lean into fully. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, so whoever leans into or surrenders or bends their knee will not be walking on pathways that are futile and failing but we begin to have the everlasting kind of life of God himself to lean into. I don't know what's going to happen, but I believe he's real. Go taste and see that he's good. See if maybe this little whisper of love crosses your soul. I can't prove it to you, but here's what I know. Hebrews 11, when we do that sort of thing, all of these beautiful people of faith that have walked it out, here's what I know. When you lean into and surrender, God comes with a gift, and it's a gift of faith. We can't drum up the faith We can only surrender and receive it as a gift. And then there gets to be sort of, and you probably know what I'm talking about, this conviction of the soul that begins to grow in our lives. That I can have lots of doubt up here, but I've got a conviction here that doesn't make much sense, but it keeps to grow and it becomes firmer and it's a rock in which I stand. I love it when all of these 400 followers of Jesus after his risen uh, self as he's standing up on a hillside, they said they all worshipped and some doubted. (laughs) Um, You ever done that before? Where you're worshipping here and you're doubting here all at the same weird time? But it's because the invitation isn't to prove that God is real. The invitation is to trust 
and begin to receive this beautiful gift of firm conviction. So I told him the story of Joshua and the Israelites standing at the banks of the Jordan River in Joshua 3. And the question of Joshua 3 is, how do you enter the promised land of God? And in this case, how do you enter the kingdom? Jesus uses this kind of language later. And they're standing at the Jordan River and it's flood stage at this point. And so if you stepped into the waters, you were going to be swept away. You would die. But it was the only way in to the promised land. So God says specifically, step into those waters. And when the water hits your foot, the waters will part and you'll have the way in. But it's not until you give it everything. Because if you step in those waters, one of two things is going to happen. You can't go back to the bank. You either are going to see a way made forward, a gift will be given, or you're going to be swept away. You choose. Choose this day who you will serve. And they stepped into those waters. And when the waters hit the foot, it parted and into the promised land where it was God's land and his kingdom where he would reign. That was the entrance in. And Jesus says the same kind of thing. I tell you the truth. You believe in me, you will cross over. Just like they crossed over the Jordan, you'll cross over from death into life. Come taste and see that I'm good. Live in relationship with me. That's the only way forward. So welcome to the series on the sensory experience of God. However wonky it may all sound, it is the call of the text. May we learn to live and grow in this, for his kingdom really is an eternal kingdom.